Uh, friends beyond the binary, beautiful bakers, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and all my patron peeps. Uh, it's time to cover uh, this. Hey, patrons, uh, how you doing? This is a look. This is part one of a two two uh, two sided uh, episode. First, we're going to be talking about the Great British Bake Off, episode seven. Or some of the facts that came up uh, during it, uh, and then like then later scoots another scoots scoots version eight will be doing episode eight. I don't know what we're gonna do about the final. We'll figure that out though. You know who 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 we'll, we'll figure all that out. So let's start off with uh, something that came up at the beginning of the episode, which was director's chair. There was four directors' chairs, so Paul and Prue were not in theirs. Uh, and I said to myself, I see those things. Now, no offense, I don't want to be judgmental, but I don't, I can't imagine, is a director's chair actually comfortable? I mean, other than it is like, a, you could, if you may be comfortable, are you comfortable in the director's chair? That could be, remember I had the, 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 those Hollywood knocks at knocks after dark, the, um, maybe I could do, are you comfortable in the main? Well, I guess that would have a whole nother meaning. Are you comfortable in the director's chair? Like, because I would say it is would be considered a seat of power or influence or responsibility. Maybe I could, maybe I could start a show like, uh, are you comfortable in the director's chair? That could be a podcast. Uh, talking about direct directors and directing and things interesting, things with direction and feeling and feelings. Uh, most of the, maybe what would be that would be pretty good. Uh, it would be a pretty good microcast. Uh, the, somebody please follow up with me in this idea, and maybe I will follow through on it. And we just like we 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 act like we're gonna. Re- I mean, the directors don't need to know this because I want to validate their feelings. But uh, like uh, we we would get a hold of them and. Uh, and then you just say, okay, are you, okay, so the, the producers would handle that. I'm, I would prefer just to be tailing. I'd say, okay, uh, we're here with a famous director. Uh, maybe we'll start with Bryce Dallas Howard. We're here with Bryce Dallas Howard, and uh, uh, thanks for being on the show, Bryce. Bryce Dallas Howard, and uh, we just have a question for you. Are you comfortable in the director's chair? And then, like, then it would end, like an answer would start, or maybe it would be one word, yes, I am. Well, let me think, well, I guess I would have trouble cutting Bryce Dallas Howard off or anybody else. But it'd be just interesting if it was like three second, like a three second episode. I mean, that would be very sleep with me. It would be sometimes. Okay, thank you for listening to uh, That's been another episode of Beyond Beyond the Director's Chair. Check out our companionship podcast, Beyond the Director's Chair, where we actually hear the actual answers and more. But this has been, are you comfortable in the Director's Chair? Uh, And then can you imagine the reviews for that, if the reviews they give for sleep? The intro and the outro were longer than... Bryce Dallas Howard only said sometimes, and then also, and then it cut her off. So it was an idea, though. Um, it, and then also another companion, our director's chair is comfortable. I don't know the answer to that. I've sat in them. I think, like, I, like one thing I'm aware of, on some of them you can get your butt pinched or your thighs pinched, the outside of your, is it, if it's on the outside, is that your thigh? I guess not. The side of your leg. Um, so I don't know, well, but let's see what Wikipedia has to say about it. Let's dig in. Director's chair is a lightweight chair that folds side to side with a scissors action. The seat and back are made of canvas or a similar strong fabric, which uh, bears the user's full weight and can be folded. Frame is made of wood, sometimes metal or plastic. Uh, the seat and scissors members work together. To do, is it is this thing just an uh? A metaphor? Uh, Distribute it so the seat is comfortably taut. That's straight from Wikipedia. What a wonderful line. Comfortably taut. That was one of my, that was a, um, I was going to do a Pink Floyd cover band 
also about feelings, where we would rewrite Pink Floyd songs about uh, how we feel about stuff, and it was called Comfortably Taught. Uh, it was set, well, it was like also I was writing it for like imagining that it was members of a military academy. It, they had a band about a Pink Floyd cover band, but you know, like because they were used to standing at attention. But it could be taught, uh, T A U G H T, too. But this is T A U T, taught. What do they call it when you learn something from a teacher uh, in Ronkonkoma? Taught, you've been taught. Uh, there's your Ronkonkoma joke of the year. Like, uh, okay, so Victor Pap. Panic uh, describes the chair as an excellent design in his book, Design for the Real World. It was simple, ideally suited for its function. Goes back to the coffers makers' chairs of the 15th century in the uh, Roman something chair. Uh, Modern American style director chairs were introduced by the Gold Medal Camp Furniture Company in 18. 92, they won a design uh, that was the lead up for the 1893 World's Fair Columbian Exposition. And uh, now, actually, they're still gold medal director's chairs are manufactured in Tennessee by Lord's Table Incorporated. And there's a couple, uh, let's see what one sells for. Uh, I don't know. This has a link to gold medal uh, director's chairs, uh, goldmedalchairs.com. You can get them for commercials or restaurants. I don't know if you can just order one. You say, no, I just need one. I wanted to say, uh, I want, do you have any ones that are uh, pinch proof? Because I'm a clumsy person. Yeah, this is just, uh, oh, let's see, personalized seating. I don't really need one because uh, I don't know if I would sit in it. They have 39 colors of, of uh, canvas. Oh, I think they mean like uh, for a big company or something. You can get screen printing or embroidery. So that's gold. So those are director's chairs. A little bit about it. But yeah, hey, are you comfortable? That almost sounds like a lyric to a song too. Are you comfortable in the director's chair? I don't know. Or maybe that was a, one of the great uh, Seuss books to never published. Are you comfortable in a director's chair? Please don't say here or there or anywhere because it would, that's another poem that already exists. It was, I think that was in Lorax 4. Lorax directs a movie. The Lore of the Lorax. Uh, okay, what about poetry came up uh, in the description of some of the food on this episode? And I said, uh, what would happen if we just looked up poetry on Wikipedia? What would even come up? And these are the things that I love just because they say what would come up. Uh, and, of course, there is an interest in it. What's this called? An in entry for poetry. Uh, it's de derived from the Greek poesis, uh, making a form of literature that uses aesthetic and often rhythmic qualities of language. Such as phone aesthetics, uh, sound phone aesthetics. That is, if I'm saying that right, I want to say it again. Phone aesthetics. Call me later. I'm saying, oh boy, uh, my back's sweating when I say that. Phone aesthetics. Can I call you? Uh, so, uh, sound symbolism and meter to evoke meaning. Meanings in addition to or in place of the prosaic. Uh, I don't know if that's ostensible meaning. And poetry has a long history. Let me tell you that Wikipedia just told me that uh, all the way back to prehistoric times, there was uh, hunting poetry in Africa, uh, court poetry in the Nile, Niger, and Volta River Valleys. Uh, uh, some of the earliest written poetry in Africa occurs in the when the, among the pyramid texts uh, from the 25th century BCE. Uh, the Epic of Gilgam Gilgamesh was written in Sumerian and uh, Western Asia. Uh, early poems in the Eurasian continent uh, evolved from folk songs. Uh, so there's a lot uh, you know, of epics. Uh, ancient Greek attempts to define poetry, such as Aristotle's poetics, focused on the uses of speech in rhetoric, drama, song, and comedy. 
Later attempts concentrate on features such as repetition, verse form, rhyme. Poetry uses forms and conventions to suggest differential interpretations of words to, or to evoke emotive responses. Uh, assonant, assonant, resonance, assonance, uh, assonance, uh, alliteration, onomatopoeia, rhythmic, uh, music or incantatory effects, uh, use of ambigu- ambiguity or ambiguity. Ambiguity, symbolism, irony, and other stylistic elements of poet. I feel like I'm living, I'm talking about meta, even though I can't even pronounce them. Uh, metaphor, simile, and meta, 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 metonymy. Met, I finally got my metonymy. What does metonymy mean? Let's look that up. Uh, M-E-T-O-N-Y-M-Y. I think it has to do with meta, but meta, metonymy. Uh, metonymy is a figure of speech in which a thing or concept is referred to by the name of something closely associated with that thing or concept. Uh, the, like the Pentagon is the example, maybe. I mean, there's a picture of the Pentagon. American literary, this is on Wikipedia too. American literary theorist Kenneth Burke, uh, Kenneth Burke considers metonymy one of the four master tropes. Well, I've mastered that trope. Uh, metaphor, metonymy, schenectady, and irony. I don't know, this stuff is way beyond me. Schenectady, in which a specific part of something is used to refer to the whole, is usually understood as a specific kind of metonymy. Uh, this is seriously stuff I've never learned. Uh, sometimes an absolute distinction is made between a metonymy and a schenectady. Treating metonymy as a different form rather than inclusive of schenectady. There's also a similar problem with the term simile metaphor. I'm going to need this down. You know, ELI5 me is what I need. Metaphor. So this one's way above my pay grade. Examples. Okay, here's some examples. Who thought we would have learned something? I mean, you're so hopefully you're resting. Uh, containment, where one thing contains another, like a dish, uh, refers not to the plate but the food it contains, a building, White House, or Pentagon. A f- physical item or body part used to refer to a related concept, such as the bench for judicial profession, stomach or belly for hunger, mouth for speech. Uh, something like age, uh, like in diapers for in, in, in infancy, palate for taste, uh, the altar or the aisle for marriage, hand for someone's responsibility, tools or uh, instruments, Rolodex, uh, the press, the pen is mightier than the sword, product for process, uh, the book is moving right along. Punctuation marks often stand uh, for meaning expressed by the punctuation mark. <laughs> uh, he's a big question mark to me. Indicates that something is unknown. Schenectady, a part of something often used for the whole. When some people refer to a head of cattle or assistance referred to as the hands. Canadian dollars referred to as loony. Uh, Benjamin Franklin's or Ben, you know, hundred dollar bills. Benjamin's, Franklin's, or Ben's toponyms. A country's capital city is, or some location within the city is also a metronym for the government, such as Washington D.C., Ottawa, Tokyo, New Delhi, Downing Street, Whitehall, Kremlin. Other important places, Wall Street, Madison Avenue, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Vegas, Detroit are used uh, to refer to the industries that are located there. Fleet Street for the British press. So a little bit, uh, kind of learned a little bit of something there. But who would have known that? Talk about a different direction. Let's cover Only Fools and Horses. And I think this came up a couple of years ago when we looked up top uh, holiday episodes, but I can't really remember anything about it. Uh, and John was talking about this, and I thought he was referring, I mean, I was really mixed up, and I thought he didn't, it wasn't and horses. I thought it was a different word, three-letter word, Only Fools, uh, 
consume horses. Uh, I'm not kidding either. This isn't meant as a joke. I thought that's what he was saying. I was like, my goodness, uh, that British comedy, I think that's what he's referring to. But it's only Fools and Horses, which, according to Wikipedia, is a British television sitcom written by John Sullivan. Seven series were broadcast on BBC One from 1981 to 1991, with 16 sporadic Christmas specials uh, until 2003. Episodes are regularly repeated on UK UK TV comedy channel Gold. It's set in southeast London. It stars David Jason as ambitious market trader Derek Delboy Trotter and his brother Rodney Trotter. So I do remember talking about this a little bit. Leonard and Leonard Pierce, uh, their granddad. And it follows their highs and lows and their attempts to get rich. Uh, also, uh, they had another... Uh, Uncle Albert was another sidekick played by Buster Merrifield from 1990, 1988 onward. Uh, it had regular characters in Del Boy and Rodney's love interests and a lot of other recurring characters. It was not an immediate hit but and received very little promotion, but later achieved consistently high ratings. In the 1996 episode, Tur- Time on Our Hands, Originally billed as the last ever episode, it holds the record for the highest UK audience for a sitcom, 24.3 million. It was critically and popularly acclaimed. It received a lot of awards uh, and accolades, both for the performers and uh, for the show overall. And Del Boys ranked fourth on the list of uh, Channel 4's 100's greatest TV characters, influenced British culture. Uh, there's a spinning spin-off series and a prequel specials, uh, sports relief special. And John particularly like talks about Del Boy, a fast talking archetypal South London fly trader lives in a council flat in a high rise tower block. Uh, his much younger brother and elderly granddad. Uh, so, uh, despite the brothers have a constant bond and it mostly focuses on their attempts to become millionaires through questionable get rich schemes. Uh, they have a three wheeled reliant regal van and trade under the name Trotters Independent, independent traders, mainly not always above board. Uh, let's see, as the series progressed, the scope of the plots expanded. Many episodes were largely self-contained, but the show did develop a story arc in an episodic dimension. So Dell is a charismatic South London trader willing to sell anyone or anything, anyone to anybody to make money. Quick-witted, cunning, his brother is lacking in those qualities. Dell is devoted to his family, Rodney and Granddad, been on the own since he was 16. Uh, he is also probably not, he sounds like he could be problematic, uh, cause he does cultural, uh, faux pas, misuses French phrases. Eventually he did settle down and have a son. Uh, Sullivan recalled that he had always been fascinated by the unlicensed traders who sold goods from suitcases and markets. And that's who he based at Del Boy on. Uh, David Jason added other elements to the part, uh, and uh, Jason was a relatively early candidate. Jim Broadbent uh, uh, was also up for it. Uh, he was in uh, a play at the time. So Del Boy is who uh, uh, John invokes in the episode of uh, GB Great British Bake Off. Let's see what else. I'm just trying to scroll through here. There's a minor cast uh, production. Let's see, let's read a little bit about production. Uh, 1980, John Sullivan, under contract at BBC. Right, he was known as this writer of the sitcom Citizen Smith, uh, searching for a new product, uh, project. Uh, was working on the show, uh, working, originally the title was given the working title, Readies. They were trying to dodge tax and work, uh, 
than only fools and horses. The name was based on a genuine, though very obscure saying, only fools and horses work for a living, which had its origins in uh, American vaudeville. Uh, he thought the longer title would attract attention. First, he was overruled that the audience wouldn't, uh, Americans wouldn't understand it for sure. I mean, I wouldn't in the present day, but uh, filming began in 1981. Uh, then it was transmitted, in, uh, that was in May. It already hit the air in September. Got 9.2 million viewers uh, in a lukewarm response from critics. But they commissioned a second series that filled it fared a bit better. Theme music and titles uh, has a separate theme song for the opening and closing. Uh, what else we got? Filming uh, episodes, documentaries. Uh, there was a documentary titled The Story of Only Fools and Horses that aired in 2002. There was also a six-part documentary on gold that in the 2017. As we said, there is two, a prequel and a spinoff. Uh, it's been released uh, many times on many different things, audio. There's a theater, stage musical, books, board games, and uh, cultural impact. Uh, it developed a cult following. Uh, there was even the only F- Fools and Horses Appreciation Society, which had a membership of around 7,000 people. Only Fools and Horses Museum, the society started. And uh, Plonker, Cushti, Lovely Jubby, uh, Jubbly, which was an orange drink. Uh, the Reliant Regal became po- more popularized. It was the three thing van. It's in the National uh, Cars and Stars Exposition at the National Motor Museum. Um, so that's just a little bit about it. There's international remakes in a lot of different countries. Um, so, yeah, that's just a little bit about it. I mean, it, it sounds like I didn't need to watch the holiday specials. The, when I'm recording this, it's in 2020. So I'll try to do that and let you know. Now, I thought also John was a David Bowie fan. So I just thought I'd see what Wikipedia has about Bowie. Uh, let's see. Um, let's see. I'm just trying to think of anything. Bowie's is from South London. Uh, like, uh, developed musical interest as a child. Uh, embarked on his uh, professional career in 1963. Space Odyssey was released in 1969, and then he also reemerged in 1972. Wait a second. Oh, Space Odyssey is is Ziggy Stardust. Uh, uh, In 1975, Bowie's eye shifted towards uh, sound he characterized as plastic soul, Uh, but it did. That's you know, lost him some fans and won him new fans uh, with fame and on young Americans. Uh, 1976, Bowie starred in the film The Man Who Fell to Earth, released Station to Station, and he kept reinventing himself. I mean, I think that's why he's so beloved. Uh, There's so many reasons why he's so beloved. his performances, his acting, prestige. I don't know if anybody's seen that even. like when was the last time you saw the prestige? I think it's just, is it the prestige or prestige? Let me look back here. The prestige. Uh, let's see. Yeah. And they kind of, you might want to look at this cause they have his career kind of broken up into chunks. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I'm a Ziggy Stardust. Uh, 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 that's where I kind of fall, but uh, no diamond dogs is well. Yeah. Diamond dogs. Holy cow. Yeah, and Young America, I mean, wow. So, so many different, uh, there's a picture of him with Cher, his Berlin era, uh, New Romantic and Papa era in the 80s. Well, Eating Let's Dance was in 83. And Modern Love, wow, oh man, those were in the 80s. Then the Tin Machine era in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, then in the 90s, uh, wow, 
under pressure. What year was that? Uh, and I don't see it. I said, wait a second, that came out. That couldn't have come out in the nineties. Could it have? Maybe it did. Uh, then uh, more work with Brian Eno. So just quite a, quite a career. Holy moly. Uh, and, uh, again, I mean, I don't want to fixate on it because, uh, just someone I, I really love. I know a lot of listeners really love and respect a lot. I was just more interested in, uh, what was on there on, uh, Wikipedia about it. So thank you, David Bowie for everything. What about naked cake? Uh, make me a naked cake as fast as you can before there was frosting, but barely Barely there, frosting was only seen by bakers as between a crumb coat and before the final layer of frosting. But now naked cakes have moved from verified trend to bakery staple. These cakes are recognized by their exposed layers and minimal garnishes. Uh, more than just a cake with less frosting, here's what you need to know from the kitchen about a naked cake. Uh, this is by Megan Splawn from 2017. What is a naked cake? It's recognized by its absent or minimal outer layer of frosting, which shows the cake's natural texture. Some naked cakes have zero naked cake. It sounds great. Uh, some have zero frosting. Some have a wisp of buttercream. Uh, but yeah, it can be the cake. The cake uh, itself is different. Uh, got trendy around uh, 2014 from the milk bar. It's like more if you want to show off the five good reasons for making naked cake, quoting this thing. You want to show off the cake in the filling. You're short on frosting. Cake on a hot day. You want something rustic or something easy to decorate. So that's naked cake. And then let's finish off with a, a, a SAT word, claggy. Claggy, C-L-A-G-G-Y. Claggy is a stickier, tacky, adhesive, uh, having something clinging to it. Uh, that's claggy. Uh, thanks and uh, good night. Or no, here's some more scoots, I guess. Uh, hey, scoots, take it from here. Friends beyond the binary, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and my patron peeps. It's scoots, patron peeps. Uh, and I'm coming in t- talking about, I think scoots may have just handed it over to me, or I may just be starting out an episode. I don't know, because uh, I only know what I know right now. I'm here to talk about uh, some of the stuff I had to look up after watching episode eight of the uh, Great British Bake Off collection. <laughs> six uh season nine series nine i don't know uh danish week though so let's get to it because we got some interesting stuff uh one of the things that came up was flight of the valkyries i think Noel mentioned it but uh made me immediately think of uh, bugs bunny oh whoops that's the wrong button so let's just talk about it first uh it's actually ride of the valkyries uh According to Wikipedia, it refers to the beginning of Act 3 of uh, Walkru, the, the, the second of the four operas con, con, so, con, constituting Wagner's uh, the, the Ring Saga, I think. The Ring, this, and something. I really str- struggle with any German. I don't know. That's tough. Uh, is a separate piece, but some people call it Flight of the Valkyries. Don't know why. Maybe it was just from that movie. I don't know. Uh, is a separate piece is often heard in a purely instrumental version, which may be sung, which may be as short as three minutes, together with Bridal Chorus. Uh, Ride of the Valkyries is one of Wagner's best-known pieces. His first uh, written down by the composer in 1851. Preliminary draft for Ride was composed in 1854 as part of the composition of the entire opera, which was orchestrated by the end of 1856. In the opera, Ride takes around eight minutes, uh, which is a prelude to the third act, building up successive layers of accompaniment until the curtain rises to reveal a mountain peak where four of the eight Valkyrie sisters have gathered in preparation for the transportation of fallen heroes to Valhalla. 
as they were joined by the other four, a familiar tune is carried by the orchestra, while above it the Valkyries greet each other and sing their battle cry. Apart for the, from the song, apart from the song Rhine Maidens, uh, this is the only ensemble piece in the first three operas of the Ring Cycle. So that's like the, some of the facts, and then there's performance history, and it was used outside of opera and movies. But I wanted to look up what's opera doc, because uh, this is really where I said, people say, oh, do you remember from that movie? I say, no, Bugs Bunny cartoon as uh, where I remember it from. And uh, I don't know where I saw it. Uh, I don't know what streaming service Bugs Bunny's on either or either. But what's opera doc? D- what's opera uh uh, comma doc question mark is a 1957 American Warner Brothers Merry Melodies cartoon uh, directed by Chuck Jones written by Michael Maltese uh, it was released in 1957 stars Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd it's so some of you may have seen it if not check it out uh, it stars Elmer Fudd chasing bugs through a parody of uh, Wagner operas, particularly the Ring of the Ring, uh, and some other ones, be, borrows heavily on the second opera in the Ring cycle, *The Valkyrie*, woven around the typical Bugs Elmer feud. Uh, the short marks the final appearance of Elmer Fudd in a Chuck Jones cartoon, and it's praised by many as the greatest animated cartoon Warner Brothers ever released. Uh, and the Library of Congress in 1992 deemed it culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant and preserved it for registration in the National Film Registry. Uh, so definitely watch it. Um, let's read. I want to read more about it, though. Uh, oh, is it, oh, this is probably why I saw it. it. was presented When presented in the 1979 compilation, the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie, Bugs Bunny claims that the short was a whole of Wagner's 17-hour opera cycle, The Rings of Nibelung, Nibelung, in his Brooklynese accent, condensed into seven minutes. Uh, he also pronounced Richard Wagner as Wagner, uh, Richard Wagner, Richard Wagner. Okay, now I'm getting mixed up. Besides the second opera, The Ring, and the third opera, The Ring, in other Wagner, Wagner in music uh, uh, has uh, overture from the Flying Dutchman, uh, the stuff from uh, the Valkyrie, from Siegfried, Pilgrim's Chorus from uh, something, the overture from Rienzi, and the Bacchanal from something else. This cartoon is widely regarded as Chuck Jones's masterpiece, and many film critics, animation fans, and filmmakers, you know, like they, like they said, uh, uh, 1984 was number one in the list of 50 greatest cartoons of all time. And uh, so, yeah, it's a very beloved, uh, I'm sure it's available somewhere. Oh, streaming, HBO Max, it says here. So this must be right up to date then. Maybe finds out where you could stream um, that cartoon's name. I forgot. Uh, not as highly renowned as this, uh, but the one where everybody's going on. Uh, the, well, it's a, it's not a Chuck Jones cartoon. It's a uh, never mind. It's not important right now. My brain just thought of it, and uh, I searched for it the other day. It wasn't available. But now I can't even think. It's like the amazing, it's sort of where everybody's racing one another. But uh, Hanna-Barbera, something where all the characters are in a race against each other as part of three teams. Anyway, let's talk about fjords. uh, Or fjords uh, from Wikipedia. In geology, a fjord is a long, narrow inlet with uh, steep sides or cliffs uh, created by a glacier that's helpful we have two qualifiers and it's a long narrow inlet steep sides i guess three but i guess if you have steep sides you'd be long and narrow and it's created by a glacier many fjords on the coast of alaska antarctica british columbia chile 
Denmark, Greenland, Faroe Islands, Iceland, Ireland, Kamakacha, and a lot more. A lot of places with fjords. Uh, what do we got here? Formation. A true fjord is formed when a glacier, glacier, not a glacier, a glacier cuts a U-shaped valley by ice segregation and abrasion of the surrounding bedrock. Uh, according to the standard model, glaciers formed in pre-glacial valleys with a gently sloping valley for, for, floor. The work of the glacier then left an over-deepened U-shaped valley that ends abruptly at a valley or trough end. Such valleys are fjords when flooded by the ocean. Thresholds above sea level create freshwater lakes. Uh, glacial melting is accompanied by the rebounding of the Earth's crust as the ice load eroded and sediment is removed. Uh, in some cases, uh, this rebound is faster than sea level rise. Oh, my page just closed. So, the, I mean, that was a little bit about it before I lost my spot, but uh, let's see what else we got. A lot of stuff here. Hydrology, coral reefs. Here's good news. In 2000, coral reefs were discovered along the bottoms of the Norwegian fjords. Uh, these reefs were found in fjords uh, from the north of Norway to the south, and marine life was believed to be one of the most important reasons why the Norwegian coastline is such a generous fishing ground. But uh, this is uh, still needs more research, eh? Etymology. The word fjord uh, comes from the Old Norse, uh, where it can have a general meaning in many cases, any long, narrow body of water, inlet, or channel. Scandinavian usage. Well, this is just more about the words. Differences in definitions. Uh, freshwater fjords. Uh, Wow, there's some good, that sounds nice. Uh, some Norwegian freshwater lakes have formed in long glacial va- car- glacially carved valleys or sill thresholds, uh, ice front deltas, or ter- ter- terminal moraines. Uh, terminal moraine, holy moly, talk about, uh, let's see, terminal moraines. Uh, Blocking the outlet, this is stuff that's even, it might put me to sleep if I keep reading it. Not that fjords wouldn't put me to sleep. Uh, A family of freshwater, a family of freshwater fjords uh, are the embayments of the North American Great Lakes. uh, The Georgian Bay of Lake Huron, Huron Bay, are some examples there. But of course, you know, like uh, this was about uh, fjords, Danish fjords, I think. Anyway, Scoots, can you move on? No problem, I can. This is, I'll include the link to this article from Cooks Illustrated. Uh, Turning your oven into a proof box. uh, And paraphrasing from this article, it doesn't have a, it's just from Cooks Illustrated. Uh, It's a brief one, too. You know, when professional bakers let their dough rise, they make use of a proof box. Large cabinet holds the air temperature at 80, 90 degrees and humidity at 75%. That was the main thing I was interested in. Those are conditions ideal for yeast activity. So we might wonder. uh, In the past, you might have tried to replicate it by holding the dough and it turned off microwave with water. But that can't necessarily accommodate large bowls or sheet pans. Turning the oven to 200 degrees and turning it off. You've tried that maybe. But here's how you do it. Uh, adjust an oven rack. Uh, place a loaf pan or a cake pan in the bottom. Place the dough in the middle rack. Put three cups of boiling water in the pan. Close the oven door and allow the dough to rise. That's it. Proven by Cooks Illustrated, as they do prove so many great things. Okay, something about Cape May came up. I don't know what it was, uh, but uh, um, I'm going to link to articles about Cape May. But So I don't eat shellfish, uh, but my family does, and they love this place. Like We haven't been to Disney World together in a long time as a group, but... When we do go, we go to the Cape May Cafe, which is a, like a shellfish or a seafood buffet. 
and then I can't, then I can't really eat. Uh, and then it has to become a big deal and they have to call over the chef and then they walk, like they walk me through it and they say, okay, can't eat that. They say, what about the corn on the cap? Nope. Steamed in the, and I say, oh, what about the uh, broccoli? Nope. Can't eat that either. And I say, could you just bring me a ham? You know, so Cape May Cafe, I got a couple of things linking it, uh, it's uh, in more in the mornings. It's Minnie's Beach Bash breakfast. We're really getting look good at alliteration here. Uh, I think it's a character dinner too. This doesn't. I'm gonna have to go to the next article. This one doesn't have what I'm looking for. Okay, this is from AllEars.net. Uh, has a menu and the prices. Uh, so there, you know, now it's called the Goofy's Beach Club breakfast uh, with Minnie. Goofy and Donald in beach attire. That goes from 7.30 to 11 a.m. But you better hold on to your wallets because it's $42 and $27 for a... That's the breakfast. We want to go to the dinner menu, correct? There we go, dinner menu. Okay, for dinner, it's an all-you-can-eat buffet, 5 to 9 p.m., $55 for adults, $33 for kids. that includes tax, but not gratuity, and it includes a standard non-alcoholic beverage. Okay, so they have a super salad, they have seafood chowder, or soup of the day. And then they have plant-based items, seasonal fruit, spinach, and apple salad, steamed potatoes, steamed corn, and coconut rice pudding. I don't remember seeing that. Ooh, coconut rice pudding. Uh, for children three to nine, they have a children's buffet, mac and cheese, chicken drumsticks, sautéed green beans, and cheese pizza. That may be what I had last time. I should have just told them to grill me a steak or something. Oh, no, then they have a carving station, hand-carved strip loin with horseradish, cream, and onion jam, cold offerings, cantaloupe, grapes and strawberries, you know, uh, four-bean salad, other stuff, uh, hot offerings, broccoli pasta, vodka cream pasta, some other pot. This is pasta, chicken breast and mushroom sauce, barbecue pork ribs, mashed potatoes, corn on the cob. Uh, seafood, they have steamed mussels, but I think it's steamed with uh, other, like, uh, uh, like, uh, what do you call that? Uh, they can eat bivalves, uh, fly, fried cramp, clam strips, paella, snow crab, steamed clams. I guess I could eat a lot here. Herb marinated salmon, batter fried shrimp, uh, calamari. Plenty of things they can eat. I don't know. Maybe I was just in a grouch or poo. The one time I did eat there before I knew I had an allergy. And then, anyway, fried cod, fried cod nuggets. Uh, one day I hope to be in a relationship where someone, that'll be their pet name for me. Fried Cod Nugget. Get over here, my little fried cod nugget. For dessert, seasonal cheesecake, flourless chocolate cake with raspberry puree, key lime chiffon cake, caramel flan cookies, cupcakes, and brownies. So that's that. Uh, Okay, then I also I'll link to an article about Noel's shirts. There's tons of articles, but I did like just want to make sure like I didn't miss anything about his shirt, which I didn't. He had an old boy shirt on this episode, and I, it, it lists about I don't know how many of his shirts. Uh, that article's from the Decider, but plenty of other magazines and stuff uh, have their stuff. But one of the things that stuck out to me I really went was there's only one mermaid in Copenhagen Harbor, so I wanted to look that up for Sandy, just because it caught my attention. So three things. Uh, so this one is from Denmark.net. Uh, the Little Mermaid Copenhagen Facts and Original Story. The Little Mermaid is the uh, smallest attraction in Copenhagen. It's only four feet tall, and she sits by the shore of the cruise harbor in the old port district, which is a short walk to the main pier and other tourist spots in Copenhagen. Uh, who wrote the original story of The Little Mermaid? Well, a lot of people are familiar with the Disney movie, which is based on Hans Christian Andersen's story in 1838. And uh, the the real story is different. I know that much. Uh, but 
uh, doesn't really, oh, it just tells you a thing about the story. Uh, but you know, there's melancholy in the, the real little mermaid. Cause she has to give up her voice and her mermaid tail for love. Uh, why is there a little mermaid statue in Copenhagen? They ask, well, it was in 1909 that the founder of Carlsberg beer, Carl Jacobson, Attended Hans Beck's and Finney Henrik's ballet, The Little Mermaid, which was based on a fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen. He was so impressed, he asked Edvard Eriksson, a Danish sculptor, to create a sculpture of The Little Mermaid. And they unveiled it to the public four years after, in August 1913, unveiled at the harbor as a part of the city's initiative to decorate parks and public areas with classical and historical figures. And August 23rd is considered the mermaid's birthday. To this day, the Little Mermaid Copenhagen is the most famous tourist attraction in Denmark and one of the most photographed statues in the world. Uh, so here's some facts. It's uh, all, just, you know, it is a copy. The sculptor's heirs keep the original at an undisclosed location. It's a legitimate copy, but a copy. Please remember that. There are similarities between this statue and uh, one in New Zealand, uh, but that's a Maori uh, statue. In 1961, they... Uh, they uh, decorated her, painted her, with put clothes on her and dyed her hair. Uh, it's 1.25 meters high. Uh, the head was modeled after prima ballerina Ellen Price, uh, but the body was uh, modeled after the sculptor's wife because, uh, the, the, like, the sculpture's, uh, the, the statue's unnatural. And it's free to access, of course, but you could take a boat tour, they say. So that's the first one. Let's see, There's and then there's this one, uh, Mermaids of Copenhagen. So there could be only one mermaid in Copenhagen Harbor, but uh, let's see. This is mypathtotravel.com. Uh, mermaids of Copenhagen, everything you need to know. It's by Karen. No last name, though. Everyone wants to see the Little Mermaid statue, but you know there's two other mermaids within a 10-minute walk? Uh, so there's the Little Mermaid statue, which we just can't... And then it, it has been messed with uh, by people like up to no good. So in 1964, 1984, 1990, 1998, uh, 2003, they found out the statue could float... Uh, uh, 2013, 2017, uh, 2020. So, it, yeah. So then this is how to get there. You could take public transit there. Uh, so there's that. Where's our other mermaid, though? Accommodations. Oh, the genetically modified little mermaid. So this one is, is sitting, it's a famous sister, is a, a group of seven sculptures named the Genetically Modified Paradise. Uh, this actually looks interesting. The group features a 4.7 meter Madonna who stands on a sandstone arch overlooking the other statues to which she's given birth. Uh, wow. Uh, created by a sculpture, Bjorn Norgard. Uh, it was show, first shown in Expo, the Expo 2000, moved to Copenhagen in 2006. And actually, it really looks uh, cool, I mean, in my opinion, but that's the kind of art I like anyway. And that's a little bit, uh, I can't really tell by the map. Uh, it's also on the water, though. Uh, Dowerloop Square. Okay, and then do we need to know anything else more about the Little Mermaid statue? Let's just check Wikipedia. It's iconic. Uh, oh, statues that symbolize, like iconic statues that symbolize cities. Uh, Christ the Redeemer in Rio, Statue of Liberty in New York. Uh, talks about the history, talks about people vandalizing it, talks about the cop uh, things. Uh, 
Well, the statue is under copyright until 2029. So you can purchase a, uh, so you could purchase a, a replica of it, but you know, you got to do official replica. There's even a replica installed in Greenville, Michigan to celebrate the town's Danish heritage costs $10,000. Uh, Oh, no, the statute did, but the Artist Rights Society asked for a $3,800 licensing fee. And uh, so, yeah, that's a little bit about the, the, there can be, I guess, so I don't know if there, I guess now there is two mermaids in uh, Copenhagen. Uh, Let's finish up with a little bit about Cape May. Uh, Ellen and Fitz, I know, live in Cape May, so I want to say hi to them. Hopefully they're asleep, though. Cape May is a peninsula and island divided by a narrow channel, and the southern tip of the island is the southernmost point of the U.S. state of New Jersey. Uh, the peninsula resides in Cape May County and runs southward from, New, from the New Jersey mainland, separating the Delaware Bay from the Atlantic Ocean. It's named for Cornelius Jake, Jacobson May, M-E-Y, a Dutch explorer. Uh, geography and political divisions uh, comprises townships of the Middle Township, Avalon, Dennis Township, uh, no, Dennis, uh, Stone Harbor, North Wildwood. Well, this is where Wildwood, New Jersey is. I didn't really know that. Uh, West Wildwood, Wildwood, Lower, Ta- Lower Township, Wildwood Crest, North May, Cape May, West Cape May, Cape May, and Cape May Point. I think I've been to Avalon, and maybe I like when, when I was like in my like nineteen or twenty, I went to Wildwood, but only for a few minutes. Uh, I would have liked to get wild in Wildwood, but uh, we didn't. Uh, the Cape May, the city of Cape May, is located on an, uh, located on the island uh, and home of the oldest seaside resort in America. Historical roots dating back to the 18th century. There's also Cape Island, a man-made island, a human-made island on the southern tip of Cape May County, which consists of Cape May, Cape May Point, uh, and West Cape May, and portions of Lower Township. Uh, Cape May Canal is a 2.9 nautical mile waterway connecting Cape May Harbor to Delaware Bay. Before the canal was built, Cape Island referred to the city of Cape May, southeast of Cape Island City, Cape Island Creek, a tidal creek and marsh that had been partially filled. Uh, in popular culture, this is pretty good. Uh, Mad Men season one, Betty Draper says her father owns a vacation home on Cape May. In Pretty Little Liars season seven, Allison's parents, Allison Summers in Cape May. Uh, uh, and they talk about it uh, in Blacklist even Season 7, Episode 14. Elizabeth Keene is told her mother walked, uh, took swam, like to swim in Cape May. So that's it. And then there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of articles you can link to if you want to learn more about Cape May or the Cape May Cafe. Uh, so, yeah, that, thanks, everybody. Uh, and I'll either be saying goodnight uh, and tucking you in here or turning you over to scoots, uh, but I'll just say goodnight, goodnight.